0: You're listening to the teaching of Calvary Paris. For more information, go to www.calvaryparis.com. Revelation chapter 4 is where we're going to be tonight, and we will be covering only chapter 4, which, uh, you know, for a Wednesday night is small potatoes, but if you've been here for the past few weeks, then that's actually a quite, a, quite a big chunk. So praise the Lord. We're covering a whole chapter together. And if you're taking notes tonight, the title of tonight's study is A Heavenly Scene, A Heavenly Scene, and uh, you can find the outline for tonight on the church app, uh, or if you're watching online, of course, you know, you can find it there under Facebook, the video on Facebook, or there on uh, the website, underneath the video on the website. And uh, so you can follow along with us on the app, or you can take notes yourself, but before we get into chapter 4, we, of course, need to refresh ourselves on the basics of the book of Revelation, and that, of course, starts with the reality that contrary to popular, popular thought and opinion, the book of Revelation is not a hard book to understand. It is not. It was never meant to be. The book of Revelation was meant and is meant to reveal, to not be something that's hidden for us, to not be something that's hard for us, but it was meant to reveal, we know, Jesus. It is the revelation of Jesus Christ. And that word revelation means apocalypse or is apocalypsis in the Greek, and it means an unveiling, a revealing. And so we know that as we look at the book of Revelation, it's meant to reveal, and it's meant to reveal a key person. It is meant to reveal Jesus to us. And we see that all through the book of Revelation, that Jesus is the theme. Jesus is the theme of Revelation, and he permeates all of the book. And indeed, that's important for us to remember, because especially tonight, as we get into chapter four, as we get into chapter four through the rest of the book, we're about to get into some stuff. We're about to see some stuff and see some pictures of stuff and some things crawling out of the earth and all kinds of stuff. But if all we focus on is the stuff, if all we look for is the stuff and what the stuff is and what it could be and what it might be and who's that that person and who's this person and what's that thing that's flying at me now, we'll miss it. We'll miss the point. The point of the book of Revelation is Jesus being revealed to us and Jesus being revealed to us throughout the whole book. And we can see that as we move through the book of Revelation, that Jesus has been revealed in the chapters that we've studied, and he's going to be revealed. We saw him first in Revelation chapter one through three as the exalted king and priest over his church tonight. And next week, we're going to see Jesus as the glorified lamb there seen in heaven, as we're going to have a heavenly scene displayed for us tonight and next week as well. In Revelation 6 through 18, Jesus is seen as the judge over all of the earth. And in Revelation 19 through 22, Jesus is the returning King of kings and Lord of lords. And so that is where we see Jesus throughout the whole book of Revelation. But thankfully too, not only do we know and do we need to refresh ourselves on the fact that Jesus is the theme, But also, Jesus is so kind. Man, he's just such, he's the best. He is absolutely the best. He saves me, and then he outlines my book for me. And we know that the book of Revelation is outlined by Jesus. In Revelation chapter 1, verse 19, Jesus says to John on the island of Patmos, he says, write the things which you have seen, the things which are, and the things which will take place after this. And that is the simple outline for the book of Revelation. And we have already, man, we are moving at a great pace. We have already covered two of those sections. We saw the things which are seen there in chapter one. As John is on the island of Patmos, he saw a vision there of Jesus. And Jesus told him there to write that vision. And he gave him there the trajectory of the book. And what is the theme is Jesus and Jesus's return. And then two weeks ago, we completed the second section of the things which are looking at the things that, that are were these churches, these seven literal churches there in Asia Minor, what is today modern day Turkey that Jesus wrote real letters to, dealing with things that they were going through, things that they had in their midst that they needed to correct or be encouraged on. And after that, now we come to this section. We are in the third section, the things which shall be from chapters four through 22, we start now the prophetic section of the book of Revelation. And for that, if you didn't already have enough outlines to go off of, just for tonight, I want to give us a roadmap of really how we're going to see the rest of Revelation played out. We're going to see tonight and next week, John give us a picture of of heaven, As he's going to be called up into heaven and is going to be there giving, giving an account of what he sees, of what goes on. And then from there, he's going to be writing the rest of this book. In Revelation 6 through 18, John is going to write to us and for us this picture of judgment that is being poured out on the world. In Revelation 19, John is going to show us the event of Jesus's second coming. Again, we looked at that last week as being this separate event that we see in Revelation 19, where it is not the rapture of the church, but it is Jesus coming physically to the earth to set up his kingdom here, which is what Revelation chapter 20 deals with, where John writes about the millennial reign of Christ as he comes and sets up and rules as king here on the earth for a thousand years. And that is an exciting, an exciting thing that we're going to get to in chapter 20. And then chapters 21 and 22, John writes about the ultimate end of evil and the new heaven and the new earth. And I am looking forward to all of that we are going to be looking at. And so should you, because one, it's in the Bible and two, it's just really cool stuff that we're going to talk about. So praise the Lord for that. But tonight, let's go ahead and get into finally our, our, our topic for tonight. And that is in Revelation chapter four, verse one, we look at this heavenly scene and we pick up in verse one and we are going to read through verse seven and then pray and continue on from there. So Revelation chapter four, verse one, John says, after these things, I looked and behold a door standing open in heaven. And the first voice, which I heard was like a trumpet speaking with me saying, come up here and I will show you things which must take place after this. And immediately I was in the spirit and behold, a throne set in heaven and one set on the throne. And he who sat there was like a jasper and sardius stone in appearance. And there was a rainbow around the throne in appearance like an emerald. Around the throne were 24 thrones. And on the thrones, I saw 24 elders sitting clothed in white robes and they had crowns of gold on their heads. And from the throne proceeded lightning and thunderings and voices seven lamps of fire were burning before the throne, which are the seven spirits of God. Before the throne, and there was a sea of glass like crystal. And In the midst of the throne and around the throne were four living creatures full of eyes in front and in back. And the first living creature was like a lion, the second living creature like a calf, the third living creature had a face like a man, and the fourth living creature was like a flying eagle. We're going to read verse 8 as well. The four living creatures, each having six wings, were full of eyes around and within, and they do not rest day or night, saying, Holy, 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 Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. Let's pray. Father, I thank you so much for this night. God, just what you have already done and just giving us the freedom to be able to come here and worship you. Just being able to come here, God, and worship you in the middle of our week and have the freedom to do so, I just praise you for that, Lord. And I pray for those tonight, Lord, that do not have that same freedom, that, God, you would give them, as we've been seeing in the book of Revelation, Lord, you would give them the, uh, the, the, uh, the boldness, Lord, to trust you and the endurance to persevere. And God, as we turn our attention to your word, as so many are tonight, Lord, I, I just pray that you would speak to us and that you would lead us and you would guide us. And that God, as we seek to dive into your word, Lord, I pray that we would humbly come before it, asking you to be our teacher and asking you to lead and guide so that Lord, we can know the truth that you have for us and so live that truth out. So help us Lord, I pray that you would lead, you would guide and we pray that in Jesus' name. Amen, amen. Well, tonight as we move through this text together, what we are looking at and reading about is a heavenly scene. And I don't just mean that it's, it's nice to think about. It's literally a heavenly scene. It's literally a scene of heaven where John is called up to the presence of the Lord. And from here is where he will witness the going-ons of the rest of the book. And before we start breaking down the things that he sees, and there are some things that he sees, creatures and all of the actions that are going on there. It's important for us to understand the significance of this and really the significance that it holds for us as the church here today. Because in verse one, the phrase after these things is meant for us to key in on as a mark of a transition, not only in vision that John is having, and this phrase after these things is going to occur again through the book of Revelation. And every time it does, it's meant to mark a transition in vision. But not only in vision that John is having, as this phrase does throughout the book, but it's meant to mark a transition in our minds again about the things which are and to the things which shall be after this, meaning the section of the book of Revelation that we're currently moving into. And this is important. It's important because the things which are, you know well, what we've been studying, they had to deal with, we just talked about it, the church. They had to deal with those seven literal churches that are, that were there in John's day in Asia Minor, what is today modern day Turkey. But not only were they literal churches in that day, but they are indicative and representative of the church age as well. And so for that, this phrase, after these things that John is writing here, is indicative of not only an ending of a section in the book, but also of a specific time and of events in time. And like we talked about last week, dealing with the church in the book of Revelation, from chapter 4 through chapter 20, the church is no longer mentioned as being on earth. It is no longer referenced to, you will not find that word mentioned in the book of Revelation. And so what that tells me, friends, as we move into this is what we are looking at tonight is John honestly giving us an inside look into what the experience will be at the time of the rapture, what we studied last week. And I say that with confidence because of what we read in verse 1 and in the first part of verse 2. And if you were here last week, you should key in on this as well. You'll remember this from that study where John says there where he was on the island of patmos he was there physically in the on the earth and he hears a voice like a trumpet meaning that it was clear meaning that it was there it was clear and it was commanding and calling saying hey come up here and instantly it says he was in the spirits instantly he was in the spirit now if you were with us last week that should sound oddly familiar to what we to what we spoke about last week specifically in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 verse 13 through 18 and 1 Corinthians chapter 15 verses 50 through 54 where we know that Paul there is there comforting the Thessalonians and is speaking of the new body that we are to receive to the Corinthian church there and he's speaking of how in a moment in the twinkling of an eye there is this change that happens as we are caught up in the air with the Lord. And so what we see here is this, is, this, is this inside look into what we can expect as believers when it comes to the rapture, when it comes to it. And I say that too, that it's significant for us because this helps us to see and concrete our view of when the rapture is going to be. Again, we talked about that last week. We highlighted three specific views that people hold. And if they hold them, that's fine. It's not a divisive salvific issue. We'll just tell them, told you so on the way up, Before everything goes crazy. And that really shows us here that if John is moving, it's meant to be a picture for us of this pre tribulation rapture that is to take place, where the church will be taken up into heaven, changed there, and to be forever with the Lord before the outpouring of judgment on the earth. And it's significant again if the book of Revelation is meant to reveal Jesus and the things that are in the future and meant to be a blessing for us, which we know it is meant to be from Revelation chapter one, verse three. Blessed are are those that read, that hear, and that keep this word. And this helps us to be blessed, to know indeed that, hey, there is coming that day when we are gonna be taken up and we will be there with the Lord, which is the aim, I believe, of John and of, of, of the book of Revelation happening this way, to bless us and to help us to see, hey, this is what's going to happen. So be ready so know that it's coming. Be ready for it. So what we know now from these verses is that John was on the island of Patmos, and he hears a voice, and in an instant, he's in the Spirit. And then from there, John, man, he he sees some crazy stuff. He sees some stuff, and what is seen for you note-takers is what we're going to be looking at first tonight, where John there displays for us and speaks to us several things that are seen. And there are some interesting pictures that we get clued in on as we look at these first seven, and eight, or seven or eight verses. But the most important thing that we need to key on is the first thing that he mentions. The first thing that he mentions is the throne and the one that is on it. The throne and the one that is on it. And this is something that is so important for us right off the bat to key in on tonight. Because you and I know when it comes to heaven, in the world that we live in today, there are many voices and speculation and talks about what it's going to be like, about what we can expect from heaven. And, you know, some of it is biblical. Some of what we can expect is directly from the Bible. I mean, we're in the book of Revelation. So what we can expect from heaven, a lot of it comes from the book of Revelation. There are other parts in the Bible as well. I love Hebrews 11, 11, 10, where it speaks there. The author of Hebrews is speaking of our destination as believers. And he's speaking there about the reality, the stability, and honestly, the permanency of heaven as the writer of Hebrews tells us that the foundations are solid and the builder and its maker are God. It's an amazing verse that tells us about the stability and the permanence of heaven. Jesus speaks of its enormity and its spacious accommodations in John chapter 14, verse 2, as he's speaking there of his father's house having many mansions. And what that's meant to key us in on is this reality that heaven is big, it's spacious, it's big enough for Those to be saved, the multitudes that we know will be saved. Hey, there's enough room for them. And so we see that some of the things about heaven are from the Bible. And those are just, I mean, just scratching the surface of things that we see the Bible speak about heaven in. I mean, just in the book of Revelation, just in the verses we just read, there are colors and things that we see. There are, there's a sea of glass that is like crystal. We know there are streets that are gold. I mean, it's just this amazing thing that we see where we look at heaven in the realm of the Bible. We're like, that place is amazing. However, there is also in this world, and we know this well, We know that there is speculative, and sadly, for the sake of making a dollar or two or a million or so, there are fabricated details about heaven. There are fabricated details and ideas where movies and books and personal stories all try to paint a picture of what heaven is going to be like. And there are some that have said that have, you know, who's to say what they saw or didn't see. I have the Bible to go up against. There are others who have said it and then said, yeah, I lied about it. And so honestly, I want to trust the Bible and I want to trust what it has to say and go off of what it has to say. And what the Bible does, what the Bible shows me specifically here for us to key in on tonight is that the focus of heaven, the first focus, and John sees a lot of things, but his focus is drawn to the throne. His focus is drawn to the throne. And more importantly than the throne is the one who is sitting upon the throne. And guys, what that is meant to do for us tonight is we start this and we start to look at the book of Revelation into the prophetic section of it. We need to understand this, that it's not the angels, it's not the streets of gold or the enormity of it all that John is going to focus on or that draws his attention first. It's the Lord. And it's the Lord sitting and reigning upon his throne. And we need to understand and so have that in our mind because what that does is it writes our perspective as we look forward to heaven. And indeed, we can look forward to it. I mean, we should look forward to eternity with the Lord in heaven one day. The Bible speaks of how amazing that's going to be. But what makes heaven amazing is the fact that we are in the presence of God, fully seeing Him as we believe Him to be, enthroned and ruling. And so, my friends, as we, as, as we begin tonight, we need to key in on this. Because in a world, in your, in your view and in my view of heaven, in, in all the different views of heaven that we can muster up or think through or have given to us or sold to us, what we need to do is make sure that if the view of heaven that we're holding on to doesn't have Jesus, doesn't have the Lord at the focus of it, then, then it's an off-base view. Now, again, this is not to discredit the things that we're we are told about heaven that are going to be amazing. I mean, I really want to know about some of these things that John is speaking about seeing here. man. the new body that we're supposed to be getting, bring it on. I want to be just a, a few inches taller, just, just, just a few inches taller, just a bit. That's all I want, just a few inches taller and not have to deal with anything, what I have to deal with. But if that's all I'm focusing on, then that's, that, that's missing it. And as amazing as I think the reunions that we're gonna have in heaven are gonna be, and I, I believe they're gonna be amazing. And I, I don't fully know what they're gonna look like, but the reunions we're gonna have in heaven with those that have gone before us that we love and know, man, those are gonna be amazing. But if that's all we look forward to, we're missing it. If all we're looking forward to is sitting on a cloud and eating bananas or something like that, hey, we're, we're missing it. We're missing the focus of heaven if we only focus on the secondary. And if we only focus on the other details that are late, if we are not focusing and looking forward to who is the focus of heaven, the Lord sitting and enthroned, then we're missing it. And so what we need to do tonight is look at John and see the example that he shows for us where immediately he was in the spirit and he was focusing on the throne. He was focusing on the throne and the one that was sitting on the throne. Because what that does is it writes our perspective of heaven as we're here. And it writes our perspective of looking forward to heaven. And so that helps us to look forward to it and to share about the goodness of it. Because this world is indeed looking for heaven as well. They're looking for some hope. And if we can give them hope that is truly biblically based on the view of what heaven is looking like and what it's supposed to look like and what the focus is to be, then man, that, that, that is a message that this world needs to hear. And that's a message that we need to share. And so John shows us where the focus lies. Before all the other stuff, before he hits on it all, he focuses on the Lord. He focuses on the one who's sitting on the throne. And so should we. So should we. And then he, seems, he seeks to expound on that. There in verse three, he says, and he who sat there was like a jasper and a sardius stone in appearance. And there was a rainbow around the throne in appearance, like an emerald." they're picturing there it's like he has no real like he has no words to like describe what god actually looks like he's just like i see a bunch of really bright things you know he's just like there's just there's this light and it's shining and here's here's what my puny little brain can make it seem like it looked like he points out the jasper and he points out the sardius stone and now if you go and i did today and you google Jasper, you're going to come up with this reddish looking rust color or maybe different dyed colored stones. And it's very interesting to look at that. And I, at my wife, many of you know, went through the jewelry program here at, here at PJC. She moved from Atlanta, Georgia to here to do that. And then I got her and she was stuck. So praise the Lord. Um, but anyways, she, I, I, te- I, I texted her. I was like, hey, is this what a Jasper is supposed to look like? She's like, all right, I was like, you know, what does a jasper look like? like, yeah, it's like red and there's like layers to it. And I'm like, oh, that's interesting. But when you look at the book of Revelation and you look at that, it, it's like, okay, so is it kind of like this muddy little picture? It's like this muddy, this muddy like viewing. And what we need to know is that that word jasper in in this can be referred to, can be translated into the word crystal or diamond. Speaking of this brightness that comes they're emanating from the throne. This brightness, this light, this exuberant light that comes out. And then there's the sardius. Now, the sardius is a beautiful stone as well. It's not clear. It's very opaque. And it's, 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 a, it's, a, uh, it's, it's like a red. It's beautiful. If you've ever seen the Lord of the Rings, the eye of Sauron is what my wife and I like, refer to a sardius as. Like, it's like this red fire looking. And it's also meant to show this beautiful picture of how the Lord is clear light and just just, just speaking out in power. And then around him, it says there's this rainbow. And there's this rainbow surrounding it, like an emerald, it says. And we all know what an emerald is. That's not like a trick one. <laughs> it's green. We know what that one is. It's beautiful and it's green. But it's not necessarily the emerald that we're meant to key in on right there. It's the rainbow itself. And keying in on the rainbow, focusing on it for a moment, we know from the Bible that the rainbow is a picture of God's promise. And we know this all the way from back from the book of Genesis with Noah. Noah is that great story about God, you know, they're saving the eight, that, that, those, those eight individuals, saving Noah and his family there on the ark and judging the world. And after it was done, they come off the ark and God there says to Noah that he will never, it actually doesn't say to Noah, but he says it to all the readers that, hey, I will no longer flood. I will never judge the world again with a with a worldwide flood, and he makes that promise and shows it there by the rainbow in the sky. And it's meant to be a picture of God's promise. And it's important that we see here in the book of Revelation that there's this rainbow that is a cross, that is that is surrounding the throne, because what it is is a sign there meant for the reader to see and to keen in on of the fact that God keeps His word. The fact that God keeps His word, and He doesn't just. It's important that John mentions this around the throne, because it's not just about, about the Lord keeping his word and that he says he's going to keep it, though that is enough for us and should be enough for us. This has to do with the nature of God being true through and through. And how this picture of this rainbow being there around the throne of God is indicative of him being true to his word forever. And with the book of Revelation, what we're about to get into, that has really two meanings for us to keen on tonight. The first meaning is that God keeps his word in that what he says is going to come is absolutely going to come. What we're going to see happen is going to be happening. What we see through the book of Revelation, the Lord is not bashful about sharing it with us. The book of Revelation is meant to reveal it to us and that God will keep his word with what he says is coming, whether to the good or to the bad, he will keep his word. But it's meant to show us, and I believe so poignantly put here in chapter four, before chapter six, to show that God keeps his word, that he loves, and that he keeps his word and promise to write and to renew after it's over. In the same way that after the flood, he put the rainbow in the sky and there said, I will never do this again. So in the same way, do I believe that rainbow there around his throne is indicative of him saying, I'm gonna keep my word. So what you see that's gonna happen, it's gonna happen. But what's gonna happen afterwards? that's gonna to happen too, and you can bank on it. You can bank on the Lord keeping his word, what he says he will do, and that's because of who he is. It's because of the nature of God saying that what I'm gonna do, I'm gonna be true to. And what that's meant for, for us is to, to key in on that tonight, guys, as we look at this, as we look at what we're studying and what we're going through, what we're gonna be studying and going through that the world is gonna be going through, that we can trust God in it. We can trust that the word is true, that the word of God is true and that God sits in truth, that he sits as true and will sit as true forever because we know that God is sitting in throne forever. And so John keys in on that for us and it's so important that we do as well, that we key in on the Lord being true and being true through and through forever because he's God and because we can trust that he will be. After John points that out to us, he deviates from the throne, and he now points out 24 other thrones there in verse 4, where he says, around the throne were 24 thrones, and on the thrones I saw 24 elders sitting clothed in white robes. They had crowns of gold on their heads, and he, he deviates from this, and so so do we. Look there at these 24 elders, and there is much, and I do mean much, debate on who these elders are, and we aren't told clearly who they are. So again, Going with our study of the book of Revelation, we are looking at a futurist literal view of the book of Revelation, which means that what the Bible says specifically that something is, we're going to take the Bible at its word. What it's unclear on, I mean, we can speculate, but why debate over it? Anyways, if you want to know, and we will, so let's talk about it. There is debate, and one thing that we can know, that we should know from reading the Bible that these elders are not, is they are not angels. They are not angels. And many think that they are. However, this wouldn't make sense since nowhere in the Bible are angels called elders, nor are they given crowns there to, nor, nor are they given crowns at any point in time throughout the Bible. And so to say that they're elders, they're ruling in heaven in that way, that, that's not their place. That's not what they were ever meant, uh, meant to do. Another theory, and the one that goes, that is the best to get on board with, um, is that this is a picture of God's completion within His people, both Old Testament and New Testament, where we have the 12 tribes of Israel. So 12 thrones, 12 elders sitting upon those thrones to represent that, and then 12 apostles to represent the church age, and so 12 elders to sit upon that, so as to represent the completed work of the Lord there on the world. So, so that, is, that is supported by Revelation chapter 21, verse 12 through 14, where there are 12, 12 names of the tribes of Israel and the 12 names of the apostles written on the new Jerusalem. And so, people speculate that that is who it is, and that is why, that it's a picture of the completion of God's work there in the nation of Israel and in the church. However, again, we don't need to get caught up in the debate that we don't know the answer to. And that's so important for the book of Revelation. It's so important for us to remind ourselves of that, that we do not need to get caught up in that debate because in that debate, we miss out on Jesus. We miss out on the key point of the book. And it's fun to talk about. There's no denying, it's fun to speculate. But if that distracts us from the key point of Jesus, then we're in the wrong. Then we're in the wrong. And quite frankly, I'm going to heaven, so I'm gonna know who they are when I get there, because that's what the Bible tells me. So praise the Lord for that. I can bank on that and rest in that and move on. And so we do. And so does John. Where in verse 5, he goes back now from those 24 thrones and the 24 elders, and he moves now back to the throne of God. And it says there in verse 5, and from the throne proceeded lightnings and thunderings and voices. And these are important for us to key in on. If you are a student of the Bible, as you all should be, you all should read your Bible and pray every single day, not just the New Testament and the books you like, but all of it. We're to key in on this, this lightnings and thunderings and voices and see them really as representative of the Lord. And from the first place that we see that there in the book of Exodus, as the nation of Israel is camped around Mount Sinai, as they are there around there, They've just come out of Egypt. They've crossed the Red Sea. They've wandered in. And now they're at Sinai there to camp out. And Moses is up at the top. They're receiving the law. And what they see is they come to this mountain. is absolutely terrifying when you look at it. There is cloud. There is fire. There is lightning. There is thunder. There is this loud booming voice from the Lord just speaking out to his people there. And it's meant to just be this picture of God's complete otherness. Of his complete holiness, they're shown to the nation of Israel. And there he gives the law there at Sinai. And of course, they continue to continually blow it, but so do we. So that's another, that's another study in all of itself. So, but for tonight, what we see is coming from the throne of the Lord are these lightnings and thunderings and voices. And what this is meant to do and why I think that John keys in on this within the context of Revelation 4. As you think about what he has said about the throne so far, so far he has done nothing but just say how amazingly beautiful it is. Like he has no words. He's just like, it looks like these rocks that we know about. Like, like that's, his, that's, that's his ability to describe it so far. And it's meant to paint the Lord as this beautiful sight. And then he says, coming from it are lightnings and thunderings and voices. And when we get to heaven one day, when we have this opportunity to see and focus on the throne of God. I believe fully we're going to see the same thing and what it's meant to do for us. In the same way that God is going to be beautiful to behold, and we are going to see in that moment the Lord fully in His goodness. I mean, just the fact that we had the opportunity to go to heaven is just an expression of God's grace and His love to us. And there when we are there, we're going to experience that to the fullest. We're going to experience being in His grace, being in His goodness, experience the fullness of Him there but we can't, in the same way that we can't today divorce His grace and His love from His holiness, we can't do it there either. And I think that that is what that is meant to show us. The fact that when we are in heaven, we will see fully God's grace and His goodness and His love, but we will also be unable to escape the fact that He is completely holy in other. That He is in every single way God. And He is in every single way holy. And it's meant to remind us of that. It's meant to remind us of the fact that, hey, God is God and God loves me. But man, God is God and God is holy. And as much as I want to look at him and be like, oh man, yeah, it's going to be just amazing. I need to never divorce the reality of God being holy. And that's a word for us tonight. That's a word for us to think about, not in heaven one day when we get to, you know, Revelation chapter four. But that's a word for us tonight to remember as well, because in our immediate context of living and working and walking with the Lord, there is a very real proclivity that we have as humans to remember there's a God of the Old Testament. There's Mount Sinai with thunderings and lightning, and if you touch it, you die. You know, there's, there's that. There's the God of wrath from the Old Testament. And then there's Jesus of the New Testament that walks around with blonde hair and blue eyes, carrying a lamb and wearing sandals, so just kind of chilling out. Like, there's this very real division, and we need to remember here and now, not just look forward to seeing it and realizing it being reminded of it there. We need to remember now that God is loving. He loves us, but we cannot divorce that from his holiness. We need to remember that we walk and serve a God who is completely holy in every way, who is completely holy and who has called us to be holy as he is holy. And we, we remember that he is holy and that he's called us in the same way to be holy. that He's called us to walk out of sin, out of our out of our out of our self, out of our natural self, out of our flesh, and has given us the ability to do so through the power of the Holy Spirit indwelling within us, as we've seen in Romans, we need to realize that, hey, God calls us to do that. So he wants us to do that. And so we should do that. So should we see the Lord, not just as loving because he saved me, but as holy and calling me to live holy as he is holy. And to put away the things in my life here and now, not just look forward to being there in the future, but knowing today, I need to follow him as he's called me to do. And we need to be reminded of that because we can get caught up. We can get caught up in the reality. And indeed, there is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. We we absolutely can bank on that. But even then, we cannot divorce the goodness of God with his holiness. And in heaven, that will be inescapable it will absolutely be inescapable. He'll be beautiful to behold. But in the same way that Isaiah said when the, when the veil came, came, came apart in his vision in Isaiah 6, and he said, woe is me, I am undone, a man of unclean lips, so too do I believe we will fully see that as well. And we don't have to fear the Lord because we're not under his wrath as we are there with him. We're not under that. So it's not a matter of fear, but it is a matter of perspective. It's a matter of perspective of knowing, hey, he is God. He is holy. He is other. And we're going to know that fully one day, but we need to realize that now and realize how He's called us to walk. Realize how He's called us to walk and live for Him as well. John moves from that then uh, in the last part of of verse 5, and he looks there at seven lamps and a sea of glass. And John in the latter part of verse 5 mentions there in those seven lamps, we know from reading the book of Revelation thus far, the Holy Spirit. And this is represented by the seven lamps of fire and named as he has been in the book of the seven spirits of God. Again, this is not referring to the Holy Spirit as seven separate spirits, but to see him in his fullness there in the throne room of God. There's no divorcing having the Holy Spirit, the third member of the Trinity there with the Lord. And then before the throne is this sea of glass, it says, like crystal. And it's also meant to take the reader, this is meant to take the reader back to the Old Testament, to the tabernacle or the temple where the design that was given by the Lord to the nation of Israel to build those structures was patterned after the throne room of God. And so this sea here that is mentioned is representative by the bronze sea that would sit outside of the tabernacle. And this was a container of water that the priest would dip and wash their hands in before going to offer sacrifices. But yet here what we see is that it is a sea of glass, now, there's debate on whether it's a sea that looks like glass, meaning that it's, it's smooth, or that it's actually a sea of solid glass. The sea that is meant to be smooth is just meant to add to the aesthetic and add to the picture that there is, there is life and there is, there is beauty there in the throne room. There's also the, 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 the debate, the thought that, that sea is glass, where it's hard, indicative of this reality that in the throne room there, as you are standing, there's no longer a need there to wash. There's no longer a need for sacrifices. There has been a sacrifice already made for us. And so the sea is there. And what it's going to look like, we'll know when we get there. And I'm excited to see that sea. If it's water, I want to surf on it. But anyways, you know, because I can do that in heaven. We see all these things. And lastly, in the throne room are these four creatures that John, that John brings our attention to. Now, as we speak about these creatures, it's a prime opportunity for us again to remind ourselves that we need to read our Bible and we need to read the whole Bible, not just the New Testament and the books that we like. Again, I've already said that, but we're gonna say that again. Because in the Bible, as you read the Bible and you read things within the Bible, it's always, you're able to interpret the Bible with the Bible. And so if you've read your Bible and you've read the book of Ezekiel, then these four creatures are not a surprise to you these aren't something that just comes out of nowhere. And you're like, what is, what is, what, what is heaven? <laughs> like, what is this place? Because if you read here and you read about these four creatures, you're like, um, okay, that got weird. <laughs> like, I bel- like, God can sit on a throne all day because he's, he's, he's God. But what, what are these things that are flying around? But if you read the book of Ezekiel, specifically in Ezekiel chapter one, verse four through 14, or Ezekiel chapter 10, verse 10 through verse 20 through 22, excuse me, we know that these are what are known as cherubim, these spectacular angelic beings that surround the throne of God. Now, again, these are not things that we, that we are, these are things that we are to know are there. And we're going to see them in fullness when we're there. And we're going to know all about them when we're there. But there is here now speculation as to what they represent, as to who, what they represent. We know what they do. And that's what we're going to really focus on in a moment. But what what do they represent? What do these things represent? And we need to remember the theme of the book of Revelation. That the theme of the book of Revelation is meant to point us to Jesus. It's meant to point us to the Lord and meant to point us to him in his fullness and represent everything should represent him. And if it doesn't, then we're off. If it doesn't, then we're off base. And so what we see in these cherubim, in these creatures, two things for us to key in on tonight as they represent. Some say as the Holy Spirit has been seen there in the seven lamps of fire, that these creatures are representative of the fullness of the attributes of God. Being full of eyes would be indicative of God's omniscience and omnipresence. Being full of eyes is this picture and this idea that they can see everything and that they can see and be everywhere at all times. And so that is indicative of attributes of the Lord. The lion is indicative of God's omnipotence, of his omnipotence, of his, of his being all powerful. There as the lion is often seen as the strongest, as the top. So too do we know the Lord is that. The ox is representing labor and patience there as, a, as, a, as an animal that would be kind and gentle and laboring and just persevering and moving. So too do we know the Lord is, is that as well. He is patient and moving and working always. The man would be indicative of intelligence and creativity, being that we know the Lord made us in his image and the Lord is highly intelligent. Again, he's omniscient, he knows all and he is creative. So too did he create us. To think, and to reason, and to be creative as well. And the eagle being a representation of God's supreme sovereignty, of the reality that God sees all and knows all and is over all and is working. And so that is one camp, to show there the fullness of the attributes of the Lord. The other camp, again, is to point our focus to what we know the book of Revelation is about, Jesus. And this possible view is that they represent Christ as revealed in the four gospels, You know in the New Testament that the four gospels all tell the same story of Jesus, but they are meant to point us to a different piece of him. In Matthew, it's meant to show that he is the king, that he is the king from the line of Judah. So the lion is representative of the gospel of Matthew. The ox is representative of Mark, as the ox would have been an animal that was a labor animal. It was a it was an, a, a beast of burden. So would we see from from Mark as Jesus was shown as the sacrificial servant. Mark ten forty five. What does it say that the Son of Man came not to serve but to be served? And to yeah no <laughs> that's wrong. Came not to be served but to serve. Reverse that and give his life a ransom for many. Mess that up. Anyways. The ox is a representation of, of Jesus there in the gospel of Mark. Luke, we know, is meant to show Jesus in his humanity. We know that he was fully God, but yet he was fully man. There in Philippians chapter two, we are told that Jesus saw it. his position there in heaven with the Lord is not to be held on to something as robbery. I Meaning it wasn't something to hold on to for the sake of letting the whole world go away, but he humbled himself as a man and came here and lived and died for us. So too does the gospel of Luke show us his humanity. So too does the man represent, is representative of Luke. And the eagle is representative of John, the gospel of John, speaking of Jesus's deity and supremacy over creation. The gospel of John starts with John 1.1, 1, 1, in the beginning was the word and the word was God and the word, word, word was with God and the word was God. And all through the gospel of John, that is what John is seeking to show is that Jesus was God, that Jesus is equal with the father. In John chapter 20, verse 30 and 31, he gives the whole reason why he wrote the book, that we would believe that he was the Christ, the Son of God. So too is the eagle representative of the gospel of John. And I like that because what it does is it puts our focus on Jesus. It writes our perspective and goes in line with the theme of the book of Revelation of seeing Jesus. And again, that is the whole point of this book. And this is such a good opportunity for us to remind ourselves of that. That these four creatures, again, we're gonna see them one day. I'm gonna ride one one day, I hope. And I'm looking forward to that. But what I know right now is if I sit there and just try to guess what they are and what they can do and all these things and just not take the, take the facts of the Bible and what it says, then I'm missing Jesus. That I can miss the point. Then I can miss out on what is really important. That is seeing Jesus and showing Jesus as I know more about him. And another reminder of that is not just to see these these creatures and to see all these things, but to honestly see what they're doing. To see what they're doing is more important than understanding what they are. To see what the, the 24 elders and what these four creatures are doing, I think is more important for us tonight to key in on than actually what they are. It's important for us to look and to know what is there, but it's important for us tonight to key in on what they're doing. Pick up with me in verse 8 as we do that. As we've looked at what has been seen, now let's see what is done there in this heavenly scene. When well, verse 8, says, "...the four living creatures, each having six wings, were full of eyes around and within." And they do not rest day or night, saying, Holy, 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 Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. Whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to Him who sits on the throne, who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before Him, who sits on the throne and worship Him, who lives forever and ever, and cast their crowns before the throne, saying, You are worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power for you created all things, and by your will they exist and were created. You notice with me, and again, the book of Revelation is not meant to be a hard book to understand. This isn't rocket science. Again, we see what happens. Verse 8 says, day and night, these four creatures They fly around and they say, holy, 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 Lord God almighty, who was and is and is to come. And when that happens, these 24 elders that are sitting there around the throne of God, focusing on him, what they do is they get off their throne, they bow before him, prostrate themselves before him, and they throw their crowns at his feet. What is done is way more important tonight than who these jokers are. It is way more important than us fighting and going back and forth on what these creatures are and what they represent. Because what we see that is done here in heaven, where God is the focus, is that worship is directed to Him. And worship is directed to Him by all that are involved. Everything points to Him. Everything focuses on Him. Everything focuses on the one who is there enthroned. And it's important for us to see there that and really helps us to get the, get the picture because those, 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 uh, those crowns there that those elders are wearing, they're in the, in the Greek, it's the word Stephanos. And it is not a crown of royalty, hear me on that, but of victory. And again, this is another reason why we can really understand that this would not be angels because angels are not given a crown at the end. They're not given a crown for winning anything. But we are told in the New Testament that there is a crown laid up for us. Paul talks about that in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 8, as he speaks and looks forward to this crown that has been laid up for him and for those who go and who win the race. And it's indicative of a crown given to the believer, the one who sticks with Jesus, the one who goes there and lives and at the end receives the prize. But again, John writes this, and as he does, it's meant to direct our perspective to the right way. It's meant to direct our perspective to the right way where these guys who have these crowns, what they do is they throw them at the feet of the Lord. As the angelic beings are screaming and crying out day in and day out, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was, and who is, and who is to come. And as we look at this heavenly scene tonight and begin this trajectory through the prophetic part of the book of Revelation, we're reminded really, again, to keep Jesus as the focus. Indeed, as we, as we get to heaven one day, man, there's going to be sights and sounds and smells and things to do, but the focus we see, first and foremost, is the Lord. His worship, day in, day out, forever. And that's something that we look forward to. That's something that we need to look forward to, is to worship the Lord forever and ever. For eternity, we're going to worship Him. And man, I'm looking forward to that. I don't know what that entails or what that looks like. Man, I I think it's going to be just this amazing, yeah, eternity is going to be rad. It's just going to be so cool to be with the Lord forever and ever and worship Him. And I can look forward to that for then. But knowing that's what we're gonna be doing then should set my heart and mind to know that I don't have to wait till then. That I don't have to wait until then to worship him. I don't have to wait until then to set my heart and mind on him being the focus of my life. And tonight, as we look at this, and as we really gain perspective on what John shows us, what he shows us is that everything focuses on God. Everything focuses on the one who is enthroned, the one who sat enthroned at the, at the flood and who sits up enthroned forever and ever. And we know that now. We know that today because the Bible tells us that. And so what that should do for us is not just give us something to look forward to, which We can look forward to worshiping God for seeing him in his fullness day in and day out. We can look forward to that. And man, we should look forward to that. As believers, we should look forward to that. We need to be healthy with that. Again, as we talked about last week, heaven is not an escape plan. The rapture is not an escape plan where we think, okay, I'm just gonna white knuckle it till I get there and just let everything burn around me. No, we're called to be on mission and to live for the Lord here while we're here. But we can look forward to heaven and we should. But we should not negate the reality that we can worship here today. And we can set our perspective on the Lord and have him as the focus. And we are called to have him as the focus of our heart and life today and every day until that's our reality. And so the question for us is, are, are, are we doing that? The question tonight, and as we move through this, is are we having him as the focus? Is he the focus of your life right now? Is worshiping the Lord your focus and having your life be patterned after worshiping him day in and day out? Is that my focus? And I've got to admit that sometimes it's not. That sometimes I wake up in the morning, I'm not in the mood to worship the Lord. I'm not in the mood to live for Jesus that day. I'm in the mood to just satisfy just. That, 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 that's, that's all I want. I want to I hit the snooze button seven times and I want to just roll over and just be just, just not about doing what I'm supposed to do, what I'm called to do, what I know I was made to do and that is worship the Lord. But I know that when I write my perspective and say, God, you are the focus, then you know what? I know I'm doing exactly what I was made to do and I'm going the way that I'm supposed to go. And the Lord is there to help us and to lead us and to guide us in doing that. And He calls us to that. And so are we doing that? Are we focusing more on Him? Or are we focusing on just Him when we get there? Are we focusing on Him now? Or are we just looking to that day and saying, yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll spend and you'll be the focus then. But right now, I've got other things to do or other things in the way. I know that the things that are on this world that we go through, that we live in, that we do, that we face when the Lord is the focus, man, we tackle them the right way. We tackle them the way that we were made to do so. And so tonight, keying in on not just what we see, and indeed there's some amazing things that we see in the book of Revelation that we see here in this heavenly scene that John displays for us. But the focus from the beginning all the way through is on the throne, the one who sits on it. Is that your focus? Is that my focus? Is that our focus together? And the beautiful thing again is that we can look forward to that, but we can do that right now of making him our focus day in and day out by worshiping him individually, by you, wherever you're at in your immediate sphere of influence, in your day to day, by getting up and saying, God, I just want to praise you for who you are. I want to worship you by getting into your word. I want to worship you by praying and getting into just seeing what you have for me and then walking that out. You can do that. We can do that individually. And it's a struggle to do that because we're not yet in the spirit as John says that he was. We're in the flesh and the flesh wars against the spirit. And so it is a struggle, but yet worship, I know for me and I know for you, can write your perspective to help you walk and do how the Lord has called you to do here. You can do that individually. We can also do that corporately what we're doing tonight. And I especially love that we can do that on Wednesday nights. There's something special about Wednesday night when you're coming in from like two days deep within the world, two days deep, two days deep within regular life and you come here and it's like, Lord, I, I, just, I just wanna meet you and know you. And that's why we honestly on Sundays and Wednesdays, and especially on Wednesdays, why we worship before we get in the word. It's not just buffer. It's not just to fill time. It's meant to ready our hearts for the Lord. It's meant to reroute our focus and to put him at the center, to put him where he needs to be by exalting him and praising him. And then we do that with fellowshipping and then getting into the word of God. And if I don't go too long, we do it afterwards whenever we sing because not only does the word, let worship prepare our heart for the word, but it also calls us to respond because when we do, God's the focus. So the question for us tonight is: we Talk about this, writing our focus, knowing that one day he will be undeniably our focus because, man, as soon as we're there, he's it. And there's other things, but he's it. But right now, is he it for you? Right now, is he the focus? Right now, is he your focus? Is he my focus? Is he our focus? Is he our focus focus, uh, corporately? Because if he's not, then we're missing it. If he's not, then we're missing out on what he wants us to do and how he's called us. So tonight, guys, if the Lord is not your focus, can I encourage you to turn your focus to him? Whatever's in your life and on your plate or in your way, get it out of there. All the things that are around, there's no discounting the importance of them in the immediate. There's no discounting the hardness of it if it's hard. But our focus on the Lord and Him being the focus of all of it, and that helps us to navigate it. And we get there by worshiping Him, by putting Him at the focus and the center of our life and saying, Lord, You are it. Every day and all day forever, You are it." And one day we'll do that forever. And we can start now. We should start now and live every day that way. And so let's pray and let's do that now. Let's take opportunity to let the Lord be the focus and just write him and put him as the focus of our hearts and lives.